Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 258 of the Modern Bar Cart podcast. I'm your host, Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining me for this special episode of the podcast. I am actually on the road. I'm at the 20th anniversary conference and trade show for the American Distilling Institute. And uh, I know it's been a little while since we've had an episode here. So I want to do a quick intro and then get some content for you to enjoy while I head back to DC and uh, put together a whole bunch more from what I've been able to gather here at this event. Um, We're going to kick off this episode with actually the keynote intro. I was just blown away by the opportunity to come up and say a few words before this stunning keynote panel about uh, just what makes spirits special. So I've got that as sort of like a special little intro recording for this episode, but the meat and taters are going to be about blended whiskey. Now on the front end of the conference and trade show, there was an event called the Whiskey Summit. And this was a one day full day event just dedicated to the art of making whiskey. And I was lucky enough to moderate a panel on blended whiskey for the whiskey summit. So it was me and it was three other experts who were sharing their perspectives on this sort of evolving and kind of resurrected category, right? We all know those big bottles like Johnny Walker, right? That's the one that really looms large in the social consciousness of whiskey drinkers. But uh, there's some really interesting stuff going on in the blended whiskey landscape, especially here in America. So in this panel, we're joined by past guest, Lauren Patz, who uh, is from Redwood Empire. So I definitely recommend checking out uh, the full length interview with her. If you like what she has to say, she's one of my favorite distillers and she's making some incredible juice out there in California. And um, we're also joined by two other experts. So um, just a quick note on the content that we're going to be publishing for these American Distilling Institute conference episodes. It's a little shop talkier than what I like to put out. You know, when I do the regular interviews for this podcast, I like to try and make an effort to really bring it down, not down so much, but bring it, ground it in the level that anybody who's enjoying or mixing at home can appreciate. But I do think that doing these slightly more industry-focused episodes is good for two reasons. One, it gives you free access to the same caliber and level of education and discourse that industry experts have access to. I love that. Whenever I can get a podcast episode where I'm hearing people talk about things that make me feel "Mm," like maybe I'm just like slightly out of my element, I'm like, ooh, this is exciting. I'm learning, like I'm in that zone where I need to stretch myself a little bit to kind of wrap my head around what they're saying. And to me, that's a signal that the content is nutritious. So hopefully some of you will feel that way about what we're talking about in this blended whiskey panel. And 
secondarily, I love the opportunity just to give you the chance to peek over the divider and to see what these people are talking about when you, the consumer, are not in the room. We have kind of an even split on this podcast in terms of listener base. About half of our listeners are home enthusiasts and about half are real industry veterans. And I think a, a great opportunity we have here is to kind of give the at-home folks a glimpse into what we talk about when they're not around. And you know, I think it's really exciting. And I don't think that the stuff that we're talking about here is so high up in the clouds that everyday people who appreciate these spirits can't also kind of grasp what's going on and, and what that might mean for the products that are going to be emerging and going to be popping up on, on, on shelves here over the next decade or so. So I don't want to belabor any of this too much more. I want to get you to that blended whiskey panel. And uh, first, I hope you enjoy this little keynote speech, this keynote intro that I put together that I've informally titled, It's All on Fire. Thank you, Eric. And thank you all for attending the keynote panel here at the 20th anniversary American Distilling Institute conference and trade show. I am super happy to be here with you today because in the seven years and more than 250 episodes of the Modern Bar Cart podcast, some of the most illuminating conversations that I've had have been with American distillers. And it's great to see a number of those friendly faces in the room here today. But I gotta be honest, when Eric came and asked me to say a few words here about what makes spirits special, unique, I kind of found myself at a bit of a loss to conjure up any deep learnings from the realm of flavor that people who run stills or work tasting rooms or tend bar don't already understand probably better than I do. So instead, I started asking myself, is there anything about spirits that maybe is a little counterintuitive, that perhaps runs contrary to the typical realities and constraints of running a business or creating a product? And as I ran through all the conversations I've had with distillers and spirits experts, I kept encountering one key truth, that distilling is incredibly thermodynamically expensive. We all know the, yeah, clap. <laughs> Thanks, Rob. <laughs> we all know the script, right? The first part of it is a story literally as old as time. Seed meets soil, sprout becomes plant, sun and rain become fruit and grain. All this photosynthetic work thrumming away with the intensity of a solar field before we even get our hands on what we call raw inputs. Then, of course, the good part. Enzyme meets starch, sugar and yeast get together, and ethanol is born, our beloved ethanol, this dual-natured molecule that has the capacity both to warm and to burn, just like its companion technology, fire. At this phase for thousands of years, our brothers and sisters in the art of fermentation have been content to just put the juice in a bottle. But, well, distillers, you all insist on taking it several steps further. You're not content until ferment meets flame. 
Liquid becomes vapor rising up only to condense and be brought down again. You are literally yanking particles back and forth between states of matter in an act of thermodynamic whiplash. And as you know, you may do that several times before finally perhaps loading the end product into a barrel harvested from a hundred-year-old oak tree, which, by the way, was also burned on the inside by fire, where the contents will oxidize and, hey, who knows, maybe 10 to 50% of it could evaporate before it even hits the bottle. Everything I just described, everything you do involves a great deal of metabolism, combustion, and consumption. And I suspect that in the course of keeping the fermenters cleaned and the stills running, the barrels filled, the shelves stocked, the bills paid, many of us in this room tend to forget the almost insane amount of entropy that's created in order to fill just one bottle of distilled spirits. But I think the reason that we allow ourselves to overlook that tremendous energy debt that we incur is because more so than anything else we could eat or drink, distilled spirits most closely resemble the human brain in their capacity to tell stories, make connections, and store information. I mean, to be sure, if there's any organ in the human body as thermodynamically expensive as the act of distillation, it's the brain, which we know consumes 10 times more energy than its size should dictate. So when we refer to beverage alcohol as a social technology, it's not just because it hits us and inhibitions lower and we feel kind of silly. It's because spirits mirror the action of the mind with the liquid clicking into the cortex like a key into a lock. We've all had those revelatory moments where a dram of whiskey, or a mind-expanding mezcal, or a perfect martini, properly garnished and gloriously cold, has seemed to rip the cellophane off the world. This is because spirits fuse the disruptive power of ethanol with the potent, hardwired emotional resonance of flavor to create something that we all inherently crave. That paradoxical sensation of feeling both grounded and transported at the same time. It's all on fire. And when I talk to the best distillers in America, they all speak reverently about the privilege of taking a portion of their own intelligence and hitching it to the photosynthetic decompositional and thermal intelligences of plants, microbes, and fire to generate a product that somehow manages to slip between the folds of the human brain and find a home in the memories and emotions of complete strangers. Like I said, it's all on fire. From the energy of the sun to the refining forge of the still to the cascading action potentials and nerve impulses that immortalize your flavors as supporting characters in the living dramas of other human beings. This is the burning creative impulse that drives us to keep making better, more flavorful spirits. But just because we have this noble mission 
doesn't mean the work is easy, right? Especially when we look out across the landscape of the industry and are forced to confront obstacles like market saturation, distributor consolidation, and other pernicious variables like social media algorithms and let's throw in a global health pandemic. But it's precisely at times like these when we should lean on the wisdom of those who've come before us, those who've paved the roads on which we now travel. Because as difficult as it seems to run a spirits brand in 2023, there's always historical echoes and rhymes that we can locate that will help us find the way forward. Today, we are so incredibly lucky to be joined by an esteemed panel of distillers who've been operating at the highest level for 20 years. And they continue to work side by side with you to shape the beverage landscape of tomorrow. It's been my privilege to share these few thoughts with you here, and it is now my distinct and sincere pleasure to introduce your 2023 keynote panel. Let's hear it. All right, everybody. Uh, my name's Eric Koslick. I'm the host of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast, and I'm here with uh, three people who know a lot more about blended whiskey than I do. I have some uh, strong, perhaps controversial opinions that we might get into as we go here, uh, but I think we should start off by introducing our panel, starting with the mushroomy, marshmallowy Lauren Patz. Oh, by the way, so you don't think I'm weird, that mushroomy, marshmallowy comment is a reference to uh, another session that Lauren led about seasoning wood and some of the notes that come through. So I don't, I don't go around calling people mushroomy or marshmallowy normally. I'm not that weird. Just didn't want you to think that I was strange. <laughs> I'll take those adjectives. Um, again, I'm Lauren Pads. I'm the head distiller for Redwood Empire Whiskey, and um, I we do make a blended whiskey. It's a rye. <laughs> um, so it's a blend of uh, rye and bourbon, and I'm a huge fan of blending and of blended whiskeys. That's it. I'm Stephen Gould. I'm the master distiller and owner at Golden Moon Distillery, and then I also work as a consulting master distiller for other brands uh, here in Europe, in Central America. Right now, um, worked in Israel. Uh, not the moon. Um, I do. We, <laughs> I have made blended whiskeys, uh, and one of the whiskeys in front of you is actually a blended whiskey that we're currently producing, called Gunfighter Master uh, Masters Blend. Dave Schmier, uh, the owner of Proof and Wood. We are an independent bottler. Mostly we do straight rye and bourbon, but uh, ventured off and have fun making blends. And one of my favorite blends is in one of your little sample glasses. It's called Vertigo. It's a blend that features a 25-year-old American light whiskey uh, with some bourbon, rye, and more light whiskey. Talk a little bit more about that later. All right, thank you, panel. Um, so first, I think the way we want to start this off, because we've been talking a lot about whiskey today, a lot about some specific types of whiskey, uh, but blends are a little slipperier. They can be a little slipperier in terms of nailing down exactly what we mean by that word blend. Um, so I know 
Um, Stephen, we were talking a little bit about this, so maybe do you want to lead us in the conversation about this kind of definitional? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's important, and most of you that work in the industry understand this, the average consumer does not. And that is every single whiskey you drink that's not a single cask release is technically a blend. We don't use the term blend, but every cask ages differently. And so when you buy a whiskey that isn't a single cask release, the distiller or the company's blender or master blender has taken the time to blend a series of casks together to come up with a certain flavor profile that is the signature of that release for that company. So in the 20th, in 20th 21st century, one of the most famous master distillers in the United States, Jimmy Russell. Jimmy Russell works for Wild Turkey. Wild Turkey makes a variety of products, but they have a certain flavor profile. Jimmy may carry the title of master distiller, but he's really not a distiller. He's a master blender. He is a, his skill set is the ability to smell and taste, coupled with the fundamental understanding of how barrels age in the different positions in their rickhouses, so that he can, on, on an ongoing basis, select different casks and meld them together to continually produce wild turkey's family of products that have a consistent flavor profile. So when we talk about blending, we need to be careful to, to understand that it's not just one thing for one solution. It is a skill set that is fundamental in the whiskey industry for everything that we do whether we're melding multiple different types of whiskeys together, such as Dave's product or such as the product that you'll taste that I've made, or whether we're blending specifically to maintain a consistency within our own family of products and our own distilleries. I, th I think that's where a lot of confusion comes from when I'm in market is the fact that most products are blends of whiskey, either they are blends of bourbon, rye, whatever, but there is a difference between that and a blended whiskey. Um, and so sometimes you're using the same words, but uh, the context or the nuance of what those words mean um, are sometimes lost without further explanation into what they actually are. Um but uh, similar to like rye or rye, rye as a spirit category versus rye as a grain, that oftentimes can be quite confusing when you're giving a talk uh, about whiskey. And I feel like um, blend and blended whiskeys similarly can be a bit of a, a difficulty. Yeah, I think that's the biggest challenge is perception. You know, if you look over to Scotland, a blend is uh well, was referred to kind of as something greater than the sum of its parts. And even, even at least in our perception here, people are more apt to think a single malt is always going to be the best you can get. Um, and then to add to that confusion over here, American blended whiskey is basically whiskey-flavored vodka. <laughs> so there's that negative connotation to it. And there's some good whiskey-flavored vodkas out there. But so you're starting from that standpoint. And then again, when you try to do something kind of elegant and again, uh, the sum is greater than the parts, you face that uphill battle of teaching the consumer what you've done. 
Yeah, I think that's a really good point in terms of just talking about the, I think you're referring a little bit to value there, right? Like in terms of like single malt Perceived as having value. more inherent value as a thing because it is a singular thing. Whereas there's also like we go through ebbs and flows with blended whiskey where, you know, we were just referencing the, the, the sum being greater than its parts. So I, I think one thing to keep in mind as distillers is like as we go through this kind of this talk, think about where the value lies. Right. Because there's a there's a, a huge status symbol in like many parts of the the previously British Empire, Johnny Walker Black, you'll just see it everywhere, especially throughout the Middle East. And when my friends came back from studying there, they all talked about how, you know, there it, it was this ubiquitous status symbol. And it was somewhere between a luxury symbol and a commodity, like it somehow managed to function as both things. And yet now here we are as American distillers talking about some very distinctly different moves when we're talking about like blending as a way of differentiating. So um, just keep in mind that, that there's different types of value that we can get out of a blend. And so maybe that's a good segue into some of the other topics. Well, and you touched on a really good point, and that is that there is a, a different perception in different markets. Um, I was in Japan last fall. And so the whiskey you have in front of you that I made is actually currently the most expensive exp uh, of the gunfighter line, the most ex expensive uh, 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 expression. Um, but I had Japanese commercial buyers, distributors, importers that could not understand that because of the way we built it, it was a much nicer sipping whiskey and a much more expensive whiskey, not only to to sell, but to produce than the bourbons and ryes that make up the rest of the gunfighter line. So really, you have to look at, and, and that's the challenge we face in the U.S. trying to sell that whiskey at $100 when the rest of the line is between $40 and $60. Um, it's about understanding what the consumer wants, understanding what the consumer's perception is when you use the word blend, and then there's the challenge of, okay, now I have to educate the consumer to get them to buy it or pay the price that you want for it. And every country is different. Do you, do either of you have, uh, like challenges or strategies for doing that education? Absolutely. Uh, we have three core SKUs uh, that are available everywhere. We have a bourbon, a rye, and then we have a blended whiskey. Um, as I mentioned, that's a rye bin. And by far and away, our largest seller is bourbon. And not in my opinion, because that's the best of the three, but largely because there's recognition with bourbon as a spirit category. Um, in blind tastings, the blend um, oftentimes comes out on top. Um, uh, it also does very, very well for on-premise, so for mixing because it's so versatile with the flavor profiles that it provides. But it does require a lot more hand-holding, a lot more explanation. Um, you kind of have to give a lot of uh, excitement um, around it in order for consumers to kind of get on board. So the educational element is crucial when you're doing anything kind of outside um, a more recognizable category. Um, I think that uh, it's also such an incredible playing ground for uh, innovation. So especially within the craft uh, distillation, 
you know, you're making um, products and we are wanting to continuously to um, differentiate ourselves. And so how do you do that when you've got all this strict rules and regulations coming down from the TTB? So blended whiskey is one area that like all bets are off. It's the Wild West. You can do like almost anything in it, which is also really, it's really exciting, but it's also daunting. Um, and that's why you get such a wide range of quality as well. And so it's hard to assign value to that category of blended whiskey, but uh, it really is something that you can create something so special and so unique in. Dave, do you maybe want to introduce your pour? I don't, I'm not quite sure if it's number one or number two, and maybe yeah, we, we can just can get that. some liquid uh, to lips. A little to add. One of the challenges is a lot of times, uh, especially in the, the current market, there's a lot of whiskey and bourbon and rye out there. I don't know if you guys have noticed, um, you know, and, and you'll have your distributors and your retailers and your consumers say, bring me something different. So, okay, try this. I've taken two Canadian whiskeys and one American whiskeys and created this really cool blend. Oh, that's great. What do we do with it? Where do we put it? We'll buy some more bourbon from you. So at least we get that. But it, it's constant education, educating our retailers, educating our distributors and hoping to get some PR that people will tell the story. I think there's um, there's some brands that have been doing a lot of aggressive work in in uh, blending and and making it a little bit more common to I think a lot of upscale whiskey consumers are kind of getting what we're doing. Um, so so that's the fun part. Um, to talk about the whiskey that that I brought, it's called Vertigo. Uh, it started with uh, some 25-year-old American light whiskey that was originally distilled by Seagram's in 1992. Um, we bottled that as 25-year-old American light whiskey and sold it for a lot of money. Uh, and it's good, but it's kind of one note. And I wanted, it, I wanted it to be better. When I took it out of the barrel, it was good. wanted it to be better. Um, so I looked at it and tasted it over and over again and added some eight, nine-year-old rye, some six-year-old bourbon, and then rounded it out with some 12- and 13-year-old light whiskey that I had. And if you try it, do we, is it A or B? Did it's it, the lighter of the two. It um, it just has a swirl of flavors in there, hence the name light. Vertigo. So uh, while we're tasting this, Dave, I, I, uh, I think you were just kind of hitting a little bit on this, but, you know, the, the name Vertigo mm -hmm. is like, can, can you go a little bit further into that? Because I, I think to me, one of the questions that's very important with this, like I think Lauren's point about the wide openness of the creativity is great, but then there's all this risk, right? Because the risk of being creative is that you're going to do it and people are going to be like, yeah, well, I'll take some more bourbon, right? So it's at least the naming of this, the vertigo, it seems to be like a, like a little bit of a, a segue into the conversation about this product. Is, is that accurate in any way? Yeah, it's accurate. And we also package this in a, in a fairly elegant bottle and, and a gift box, and we called it an extraordinary American, uh, extraordinary blend of American whiskey. Uh, so that one was actually not challenging to sell. Uh, the one where I blended Canadian and American whiskey together, that, that one seems to be a, a big uphill battle. Um, 
called Cross Border Jackpot, in case anyone's wondering. Um, and then there's another one that uh, it's more of a burai, uh, bourbon and rye, called the Cabinet, which is a blend of uh, a five to nine year old rye and five and six year old bourbon. That one's been fairly well received as as well because it's easy for people to understand. I even get comments from, you know, this isn't unique to my product, but I've got a list of all the whiskey that's in the bottle on the outside and people go, oh, I get this. And, and they pay way too much money for it. <laughs> Do you want to introduce your? Yeah. Well? So, so the darker one, um, we tied in the last session, we talked a lot about uh, uh, long aging bourbon. So, I do a fair amount of consulting, and I was working on a project in Ireland, and I had a, a gentleman who's since passed named David Pickerel. I think some of you are familiar with him. Um, David and I, I, I sometimes call him my consulting partner, but we were never partners. He would work for me, and I would work for him. And so I called him up, and because he was, he was a much, much higher trained distilling process engineer than I am, I said, David, I'm, I'm building a, a big distillery for a rock star. Um, Bono, by the way, um, and I need some help on distilling process design uh, just to make sure I need, you know, a little bit of work here. And Dave said, well, I'm overwhelmed on this project for Metallica called Blackened. <laughs> so I said, well, anything I can do to help? He goes, yeah, he goes, I'm, I'm, I'm buried. I don't have time to source. And because Blackened, as I think you're all aware, uh, was it was and still is a sourced product, sourced and blended. Product. Not a crime. Not a crime. And it's a blend. Blackened is all blend. Okay. And blackened is sourced and blended and then recast and aged. Um, so Dave helped me and I helped him and uh, I sourced about 40% of the initial buy for that project. And Dave said, there's no budget for you. So I said, fine, I'll just take it on the sell side. And so the people I was buying from gave me a commission that I took in liquid. And I chose to take uh, uh, a large volume of hand-selected casts of 12-year-old bourbon. And I brought that whiskey from uh, where it was sitting in, in Kentucky uh, into Colorado, into my distillery. And if you go to my class tomorrow or, sorry, Thursday, I'll talk a little bit about barometric pressure and what it does and relative humidity and what it does to, to, uh, to maturation. And so, you know, three years later, I've got 15-year-old whiskey that now is really, really, really oaky to the point where it wasn't pleasant to drink. And so I said, all right, didn't even think twice. I said, we're going to blend it out. And so we took our young two-year-old uh, two Colorado single malt, it's an American single malt. Uh, we took the 15-year-old Tennessee bourbon. And what you have in this glass is what we call edition one. And that was uh, a 10-barrel batch of a blend of 23% 15-year-old bourbon and 77% of American single malt that we did grain to glass in our distillery. We then recasked it into, into uh, uh, first-fill bourbon casks and put it on the wall for 6 to 12 months. And then we bottled it, and that's edition one. Now, because you get variation in barrels, edition two is not edition one. And so the ratio is different because we're looking, we were looking to find that sweet spot between the really heavy, oaky, old bourbon and the young, sweet, approachable American single malt and bring them together to make something unique that was 
greater than the sum being greater than the parts. Now, as I said, it, ended, it, it is our most expensive skew in the gunfighter line. Um, gunfighter whiskeys are all 50 ABV that we at Golden Moon produce. They're either sourced or they're blends of sourced and, 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 and home distilled whiskeys. And it's a hard sell because people look at it and say, well, why would I spend $100 for a blend? when I can get your, your port finish or your rum finish or your vermouth or soon to be tequila finish bourbon or rye for 40 bucks. So it's all about education. Now we're starting to get a following and there are people that will say, that'll come in and say, look, you know, that's a great sipping whiskey. It's special. I know it's special. The other thing we've done to differentiate is it's the only member of the line that comes in a tube and you know, that tube cost me a whopping three bucks and it, it, the velocity of, of, of sales off the shelf in that tube, I mean, $3 is a lot to add to a package, but it's a hundred dollar bottle. If I sell twice as many bottles, cause I'm putting th another $3 into market differentiated, that's $3 well spent, right? Hello, Modern Bar Cart listeners. It's Jordan Hughes from High Proof Preacher. I wanted to let you know about my new cocktail and product photography e-course called Cocktail Camera 101, and it is now open for new members. The course is all online, it's self-paced, and you have lifetime access to the material. So go to cocktailcamera.com slash 101 to enroll and use the code THEMODERNBARCART, all caps, no spaces, for 75% off enrollment. I hope you check it out and learn how to up your cocktail and bar photography game with me. Cheers. Yeah, I love what you're saying about additions, right? Because like, as I'm thinking about this, I'm, I'm looking for ways and we've all, you know, we've hit a, a number of different conventions for gaining attention and educating about blends, right? We've got the, the naming like uh, vertigo. We've got the packaging. Um, we've got uh, just uh, like, think about blackened, right? Their playlist thing where you get to listen to the music that was playing to the whiskey while it was maturing. Like there's all these different ways that we're uh, finding different access points for folks. And I guess, you know, to reference one of my perhaps controversial opinions, it's that in certain respects, bourbon, big, big bourbon, mass market bourbon that people then flip and sell in a secondary market maybe has kind of jumped the shark in certain respects. And I think in the American whiskey space, blends and to a different extent, American single malts have a really interesting role to play for getting people excited about whiskey again, instead of it having, having it just be an eye roll of like, I have to pay a what for that bottle with the horse topper. Right. Um, so um, I think the addition thing is a really smart way to go about this because it, it really, it singles out the import, like the, the, the virtuosity of the blender or like almost like the blender as, as the mixer, like almost like a, an MC of the whiskey. Um, so I don't know, is there any other like creative ways that we've, that we've seen, uh, a la blackened or that, that you've, uh, implemented in your own operations that you think have a potential to scale to other operations who are considering putting blends out to the market? Well, you and I talked about this earlier today. Um, you know, the Japanese, are victims of their own success in that you used to be able to find these beautiful old Japanese whiskeys. Now you can't. 
because they sold all their old stock. And this is across the industry in Japan. So what Suntry has done with their blue label is, is they've created a world whiskey. And you know a lot more about it than I do. But what they've done is they've created this perception that by taking whiskeys from around the world and melding them together, they've created something that's better than the individual whiskeys. Now, one of my, one of my consulting projects in Ireland, we're looking at doing the same thing with a family of whiskeys to make a blend from different parts of, of the world, if you will, but in this case, the Celtic world. Um, to come up with a story that melds with a whiskey that is now market differentiated from everything else. So blending can be done for a variety of different reasons. And one of them can be marketing. Better taste good. Yeah, I, I do want to just jump in and elaborate a little bit more about that. That It's called Ao, A-O, um, the Suntory. I tasted it at Tales of the Cocktail last year, and they did a tasting that may be familiar to you, but at the time it wasn't familiar with me. It was a component tasting. So the main blend was in the middle of the tasting mat, and then they had the five other samples kind of arced around that, but they weren't the components. Each of those five samples surrounding the final blend had one whiskey out of five missing. So it was an upside down or inverted component tasting. And so what you were tasting was actually the absence of whatever wasn't in there. And as you got to the final, like as you went around and went back and tasted a little bit, you, you, it doesn't matter almost the quality of that end product, but you couldn't help but admire the intelligence of the blender in doing that process. So for me, that was such a beautiful way to demonstrate to people the, the skill and the art of the blend. So, um, like if anybody's thinking about putting together a, a blend that has three or more components, doing something like that where you're showing in negative the actual process behind the whiskey is something to consider for your tasting rooms. Uh, on that note, I've done a couple of tastings where we deconstructed the vertigo, and that was really, again, it, it tended to be really geeky, whiskey, whiskey people who attended, and, and it opened up their eyes to what was going on and made them buy some, which was really cool. And then on, on a really basic, and Steve was talking about, you know, almost everything we do has a component of blending. Uh, when, when I had redemption, the, the bottle would be um, different ages of, of rye whiskey to get to the profile that we wanted. And so we did a trade uh, event with New York bartenders and we showed them that. And then, uh, you know, we let them go wild and create their own ideal blend, giving them, I think, choice of six different ages. And, and it got them kind of involved into what was going on in the process and all that. And then, then we graded them on their blends. I will say blending is an entirely different skill set than distillation is. You know, oftentimes we talk about the dichotomy of science and art in our craft, and I feel like there is a pretty good line between distillation and blending. I think there is an element of science and art in both, but I think that distillation is kind of like the scientific, you know, um, controlled... <laughs> 
aspect of what we do. And then the blending side is more of the freeform, artistic, really focusing on the sensory component of what's happening. So um, it's one of the things that I've really enjoyed about um, coming to Redwood Empire is the fact that as, you know, being at a larger distillery, having the opportunity to do both. So being the distiller, but also being responsible for the blending is uh, is really special and doesn't always happen. So being if you can take advantage of that in your own situations, highly recommend uh, that you do. We also offer an experience um, at the distillery for certain groups uh, where we do uh, blending sessions to kind of show them a little bit more uh, insight into what that side of production um, process looks like. Um, even our bourbon is, uh, is, has many components in it. It's a blend of four to 14 year old uh, bourbons. It's four different states. It's got all kinds of different um elements coming together. So there's a significant amount of time and energy that goes into um, even just the bourbon or the rye. Lauren, I have a question for you since I think the um, the whiskey that you're making right now is in a lot more markets. Uh, and so my question is like, when you think about consistency versus allowing maybe some of these products to drift a little bit, how do you think about that when scale is ultimately a, one of the big concerns? I think blending really uh, allows you to be very consistent. Um, we have a, a scaffolding of Excel spreadsheets that kind of give us the starting point for when we put those blends together. And then um, as components fall off or we change, or if there's any sort of element that needs to be uh, redirected or redesi- reassigned, that is when the sensory component kind of comes into play. But overall, our batch sizes are you know anywhere from 100 150 to 250 barrels per batch. Um, I mean, not crazy massive, but still, you know, that's a good amount of liquid, a good amount of juice. And um, you can really um, round out some edges with a larger um, volume like that. So consistency, it happens. Nice. You got a question over here? Hi, I'm, uh, my name's Devin. I'm the CEO of American Mash and Grain. Um, I don't know if it's definitively, but I think my company might be the only company exclusively dedicated to blended American whiskey. Um, so my question to you is, when you're approaching blended, because there's there's like a different, sort of like what you were just talking about, there's a different point of view from when you're blending a flagship product, uh, especially on a larger scale, versus maybe a more specialty project product like what the Vertigo might be, or the Gunfire, uh, or even a new product you might release between the American whiskey world especially that might be smaller or more boutique, kind of like what you were talking about with the three or four components, five components. What's the difference in the approach when you're blending like a flagship bourbon versus a blended whiskey that has multiple styles where rather than maybe hiding some some barrels in that larger blend, your goal is actually to figure out how to highlight all the different styles and make them play together. Is that... <laughs> open to the group. Uh, yeah, I'm not a distiller, so I probably shouldn't answer this one. Um, yeah, I. that's a great question. Um, I think that 
I always approach blending the same way, which is I have a goal in mind. What is the goal that I'm trying to achieve? And then I use the different elements that are in my library or the things that I have access to in order to achieve that goal. So we do also do a uh, bottled and bond uh, expression, which is 100% our own grain to glass product. And we um, taste through several hundred barrels in order to put those blends together. And there is a difference between how we approach that as opposed to how we approach uh, the uh, the flagship bourbon, and um, it has to do with who the consumer is. Um, it's not just you know what we think is best, although I wish that is always what would be happening, but it isn't. Uh, and so um, we kind of go with like what uh, flavor profiles we're looking to kind of um, achieve with. A certain consumer base. And then for the bottled and bond, um, there is a little bit more freedom to kind of go, I don't want to say exotic, but um, maybe off the beaten path a little bit more. So um, although my approach is the same, um, I think that those goals that I'm working towards differ based off of um, what the intention behind the product is. You, you talked about highlighting a feature and uh that's something you want to do sometimes and and you want to be able to talk about it you want to be able to tell a story why should i buy this bottle um bunch of years ago i i was fortunate enough to get some older stock of of bourbon uh, 11 and 12 years old and you know at 11 and 12 years old uh, you're gonna get a lot of variance in in your barrels younger whiskey tends to be easy to work with uh, when it's consistent and, and age hasn't changed it all that much. Um, but these barrels were wildly different. And, and I, I created two, uh, two bottlings out of it. Uh, one, uh, I used all 12 year old and, and try to create a balanced whiskey where, and oversimplifying it, I took, you know, half, uh, more, you know, uh, sweet forward, barrels and the other half were, were a little woodier, more tannic. And we kind of achieved kind of an equilibrium there. And that was a really, a really nice bottle of whiskey. But also, I think we know that uh, not everyone's tastes are the same. And I tend to like woodier whiskey. Um, but sometimes they get too woody. Like I had an eight, some 18-year-old bourbon as well that was overly oaked. But then the idea was to balance it but still highlight that that would and, and talk to people and say, hey, if you like a, a, a woody bourbon, this is for you. If you don't, you know, buy this one. Well, and, you know, it's again, what, what Lauren said is you have to have an intent. You have to know where you're going and where you before you start doing it. you don't just start mashing stuff together. Right. And hope it tastes good um, with the whiskey that you just tasted that, that we produced. Our intent was very deliberately because we had this beautiful bourbon, but young American single malt is something the consumer isn't familiar with. So we figured that the 15-year-old bourbon would get people to buy the bottle and that the bulk of it being young American single malt would get people exposed to the new, the new and up-and-coming category that really is the bulk of what my company is, will be producing moving forward. Um, has that worked? I'm not sure. <laughs> one bottle, <laughs> but that was one the bottle at a time. That one was the intent. 
I love that. I was actually going to mention something like that earlier. I was like, if you have a, an off whiskey or an odd whiskey, like I love working with triticale. I love working with wheat and spelt. Um, and those are, you know, also require a good amount of education. So I was like, put some bourbon in it. And <laughs> there it is. There it is. I think this kind of gets to the inherent tension that kind of exists in blended whiskey, which is sort of what the panel's been talking about here, where traditionally blends have been celebrated for their consistency. This gets to the intent part, right? So is the intent, you can, any product, you can make it and highlight consistency, or you can, you know, single barrels, you can highlight the variation, right? So if we have blended whiskeys that have traditionally always been really, um, I guess marketable or, or commercial because they're consistent. But then what I'm hearing the panel kind of saying is, well, you got to make something that you know you, you got to educate, right? And education generally is largely accepted by people who are willing to take a chance on a product and you know something new and edgy. But those are two different intents. I'm just wondering, you know, if there's. It's any a great point. I, I think that um, what. I think we've done with blending is more uh, limited time special products. Whereas if you're thinking of a blend, I guess in, in the Scottish sense, that that's a different intent. And, and I think the challenge there is you got to be prepared to go mass market with that. You've got to scale that up for that to even make any sense. And that's a, that's a challenge for small producers, but it's a possibility. So, you know, it's easier to sell a $100 blend than a $35 blend, I believe. Yeah, and I'll just Currently. I'll, I'll piggyback on that and, and say maybe to maybe to square the circle that you've presented, there's consistent, there's consistently better than most other products on the shelf at that point, at that price point, and there's consistently amazing every time that I will pay $200 a bottle for. And I think we've talked about all three of those types of consistency here. Um, and so, so yeah, I mean, consistency can happen in, in different ways. And I, mean, I, I think that's what, that's almost like the, the paradox of, of the, the individual genius of the blender, right? If it's in individual genius and you're spitting out these limited edition blends every time, well, then you can't replicate it. How could it be consistent? Well, the consistency lies in repeating excellence again and again and again. Um, so I, I do want to wrap this up because I know we all have things that we want to get to this evening. We've got some fun stuff on the, on the schedule, but I want to do that by just asking, uh, folks thoughts on the future, uh, short and midterm future of blended whiskey in America. And my opinion, I have a couple of opinions about American whiskey. The two strongest of which is that I think American single malt has the biggest potential to unseat bourbon in terms of the super premium category eventually, maybe not next year. Um, and uh, I think blended whiskey, I mean, this is more of a wish than an opinion, but I would love Colorado to see Mall. better, more consistently priced bargain blended whiskey that I could go to a bar and get a shot and a beer with and have it be five to six bucks. Like that is a deep wish that I have. And I think blended whiskey could fill that niche. So I'll turn it over to the panel now for any prognostications on blended whiskey. Yikes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I feel as though 
I've achieved that dream of yours. Uh, <laughs> that the our blended whiskey is $35, you know, on a shelf and it is accessible. It's not gonna break your bank. It's gonna be, you know, solid for you, consistent for you on the back bar shelf. Um, so you're welcome. No. Uh, <laughs> it must be that beer that's expensive. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, but in terms of the future, um, what I would like to see is um, just people being more open to trying it and uh, and being kind of adventurous in that way, regardless of which direction they're looking to go. So I have more hopes for consumers than I do actually for producers when it comes to uh, the future of blended whiskey, because I think it is something that a lot of distilleries are continuing to play around with and always will. Um, but uh, I'm really excited to see where it goes with uh, for consumers, actually. You know, it's blended whiskeys are sometimes looked down upon in this country, but some of the largest brands on the planet are blends. Johnny Walker has been mentioned multiple times. Um, you know, I don't think they're going any, you know, they're not going away. Uh, I think rather they allow a lot of us to create products that are more premium, that are entryway products potentially to expose consumers to types of whiskey that, like I said, with, with Gunfighter Masters Blend, it is predominantly American single malt. It's 77% American single malt. And it allows us to use that blend as a tool to get people to actually start thinking about something other than bourbon, um, who might not otherwise think about something other than bourbon. And it also allows us as, as Lauren said early on, huge creativity. I mean, we can do whatever we want because it's, it's such a broad category that's, that unlike most of the other whiskey categories in the U.S., doesn't have a, a very tight definition. So we can use new barrels. We can use used barrels. We can use whatever whiskey input we want, call it a blend, and put it on the market. And that just gives us the freedom to appeal to consumers in so many different ways. So, I mean, the sky's the limit really is where it could go. Yeah, I, I think, you know, right now I, I see a big runway for premium blends um, as far as more mainstream blends. And it's great that you've got one going on. I think, uh, you know, again, looking to Scotland and, you know, the biggest brands were blends, uh, but they, they had uh, a lot more, uh, choices to work with, with where they were getting whiskey and how they were getting it. And I think we're getting to that point in the U.S. I mean, you know, 20 years ago when most of you guys weren't doing what you were doing now, there were, you know, a handful of big distilleries that, you know, made some whiskey and the idea of trying to create an interesting blend based on what you could buy in the U.S. what, you know, wasn't really feasible. Now there's a, t a ton of possibilities from single malt to different rye and bourbons. I think, you know, somebody is going to crack that nut and you might not even need a celebrity to create a, create a big brand with that. <laughs> all right. Any questions before we wrap this up and let you go get some food? All right. Well, thank you all for attending the Whiskey Summit.
Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here. And by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and sound design by Samantha Reed, blended whiskey insights courtesy of Lauren Patz, Stephen Gould, and Dave Schmier, and a little bit of panel moderating magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2023.